Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do something a little bit differently. I'm going to have actually Ben and uh, Nick come on up. Um, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings. And um, curiously enough, Jesus, this is a sermon that Jesus teaches. But curiously enough, today, um, I'm actually not going to do a sermon. We're going to do something really different. Now, that's kind of funny for me because I love sermons. I love preparing sermons. I, I, I live in some ways for sermons. I mean, I love them. I, I listen to them all the time. Most of my iPod is sermons. I read sermons. I write sermons. I preach sermons. I'm all about sermons, all right? But, and and I, we're, it's, we're even in the Sermon on the Mount, all right? So everything's about sermons. But what we're going to do here this morning is a little bit different where we're not going to really do a sermon. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Jesus' teaching on prayer, because as we've been making our way through it, we're on chapter 6 right now, and Jesus talks about prayer. So we're going to basically talk about prayer. Jesus gives this model prayer. Uh, most of us recognize it as the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's not a prayer necessarily that Jesus prayed. Uh, it's a disciple's prayer. Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, this disciple's prayer, as a model to his followers as to what prayer could look like, what prayer should look like. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, um, we've got each of our pastors and they're going to share a little bit about the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to talk about it. And then at the end, so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking. At the end, we're going to pray. So you're like, wait a minute, what does, that, what does that mean? Is it okay to pray in church? All right, all, that's your, you know, frequently asked questions. Is it okay to pray in church? Answer, yes. Um, should we pray in church? Answer, yes. All right, do we always pray in church? Answer, no. Should we be bummed about that? Yes. All right, I mean, the point <laughs> is that we, church should be a place where we can pray. So I'll tell you a little bit more how we're going to do that in just a moment and what that will look like. And uh, some of you are kind of sweating palms right now. You're like, well, what do you mean? We're gonna, I got to actually say hi to someone uh, and pray with someone. Yeah, I'll tell you about that a little bit in just a moment here. But hold tight. We're going to talk a little about the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I'm going to basically start this off by praying. And then I'm going to read the passage that we're going to be taking a look at, which is sort of in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, each of our pastors are going to share a little bit about the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to pray. We're going to actually do what Jesus encourages us to do, which is pray. So let's pray right now, and uh, then we'll get to work this morning. Father, we ask you that you would just reside over this whole thing, that you would be here, that you would open our eyes, that you would stimulate, Lord, our hearts to help us to understand what prayer is. We pray at the same time you would break down false stereotypes that we have about prayer. Um, God, perhaps one of the reasons why prayer freaks us out, the idea of sitting before a holy God and actually being intimate with you is something that might be foreign to us. And Lord, for whatever reason, it's almost easier for us to do something for you, to give money or write a check or just do something of a service for you than it is to actually sit down at your feet and just love you. And Lord, it's, just, it's all the sign of the fact that intimacy is something we're just not comfortable with. And we pray, God, that you would break that down inside of us, that you would help us to understand why that's like that, and help us to think differently about prayer, which is exactly what you wanted to do, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, was to help your disciples, help your followers to break away from cultural stereotypes 
and begin to find prayer as the way that you see prayer, which is fellowship between a father and a son and daughter. So help us now, we pray. We ask God that our question in our heart would be just like the apostles, which was, Lord, teach us to pray. So we ask you right now, help us to pray. We just confess and admit that a lot of times we just don't know what it's all about, but we're asking you to help us. And we do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. If you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of uh, Matthew chapter 6. Um, we're going to read this. And again, today will be more of like a teaching, more of an instruction as, as we go through this. And then we will basically do what Jesus instructs for us to do. So let's read uh, chapter 6. We're going to pick it up about verse 5 and we're going to go down to about verse 14. I'll read it. You guys can follow along. It sort of uh, sets for us a context of everything. Um, Jesus says in verse 5, and when you pray, he's assuming that you do, you must not be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and on street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received the reward. And when you pray, you go into your room and you shut the door and you pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who's in secret, who sees you in secret, will reward you. Verse 7, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they, have, that, that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you have need of before you even ask Him. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from every evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus basically, in sort of the movement of the Sermon on the Mount, comes to this place where he's essentially saying, when you pray, he's talking about acts and works of righteousness, so he assumes that God's people pray. I want to basically start by saying I, I realize that there's a lot of false stereotypes about prayer. A lot of people have misconceptions about prayer. And because of that, we just don't pray. We're a little bit freaked out by it when the thought of like maybe even praying uh, around other people, uh, speaking out loud and praying in front of other people sort of freaks us out. Um, we've had a lot of bad examples of this. Um, even Jesus points to some of these. He says some people like to pray. They like to pray really loud. So everybody sees them. But he's basically, rather than simply throwing it out and saying, don't pray because everybody's ruined it, what he does is he tries to rescue it. And I think the reason why he tries to rescue it from people that have destroyed it is because it's something that is good. It's something that God has designed. Something that God desires for us to have in terms of interaction between us and our Heavenly Father who truly loves us. So what we're going to do right now is in the Lord's Prayer itself, in the next slide, we're going to basically see it broken down, beginning at about verse 9, where it says, Our Father. Uh, Pastor James is going to share with you guys a little bit about our Father who is in heaven and His kingdom come. And then Nick will share with us a little bit about giving us our daily bread. And then Ben will share the verse 12, and then I will wrap things up, and then we'll actually go to God in prayer. So each of us will share briefly about this, and then we'll get to work doing it. What a wonderful thing to see the very first word, our, given by Jesus in terms of prayer. When he's responding to the question, how should we pray, Jesus? Here's his first word, our. 
And he doesn't say my. Some of these things that I'm going to look at in the first section is what he doesn't say. Um, Jesus could have easily said, well, one day you would ascribe to my level of spirituality, then you can approach God. He could have said, um, my father is totally um, unapproachable because of your sin. You're sinners and you have no hope. He basically changes that one word. He says our. He includes us. He welcomes us. It's almost like an invitation, if you will, to join with him to fellowship, not just to do a duty, uh, not just to do a spiritual exercise, but to actually have fellowship. He includes us in that. And uh, though he was the perfect representation of what it is to love God and to serve him as a father, as a son would, um, in fact, in John 8, he says, uh, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. He's basically including us in, I've, I'm, le- I'm living the perfect representation, the quintessential, if you will, of what it means to be a son to the God who is the Father. And then, but yet he opens the door and he basically says, when you pray, pray our, pray. He's inviting us into fellowship as he has fellowship with the Father. That's the gospel because what that does, it necessitates, how does that happen? How do we go to God knowing that we're sinful people, knowing that a holy God does not coexist with just winking at sin? There has to be a reckoning for it, a, a propitiation, as the gospel would say, or as Paul would say, point out. So the gospel is here. We only come, the first hour, the invitation is conditional on us coming in Jesus, in the beloved. That's how we're received as children. And we're called children because the next word is father, our father. This is a very, very different than religion. Religion would say our God, our Elohim, our Jehovah, our Lord, our Master, the one we serve. But the word that he says in the context of communicating with God is one of, of um, pater or Abba. Uh, there's a term of endearment here that uh, necessitates relationship. So we're talking about gospel here. We're talking about unlike any religious duty that you would do. Oftentimes you think of prayer if you're like me. Wow, I didn't pray today as if it stood alone as an exercise that pleases God when we participate in it or something as sort. But he's really saying something very differently, isn't he? He's saying our Father, in the context of there's a relationship that's at work here. This is something that you come because your Father loves you. Your Father wants you to come. He doesn't want necessarily your actions. He wants you because you belong to him as a child. And also something I just, uh, just totally breezed through my notes and went past, and I, I want to make sure this is, is understood as well, is that he says our as far as a corporate endeavor. You know, he says, I want to invite you into my relationship that I have with the Father, but this is a corporate thing we do together. It's inclusive. We're here in unified oneness that we preserve, we seek to preserve, knowing that we have one destination, and it's the Father. It's not a bunch of gods. It's one destination. It's the Father who is in heaven. We're all going, and we're all unified. And thus, it takes a unification, doesn't it? Because if I, if I dislike him, and I hate him, and I'm bitter towards him, and let's go to the Father in prayer, our Father. That's just hypocrisy, right? It's not ringing true with reality. It's no. I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Likewise, everyone around you in Christ has been forgiven. It's a journey together. We get to fellowship with Father. No one better than the other. It's all unified in one purpose. That is fellowship, one-on-one with God, but corporately with God. So our Father... Um, I want to read you this as, as we look at 
you know, different connotations coming to you, different ideas based on father examples that you may have had. The question becomes, there's a lot of ways to be a father. There's a very stern father. There's a very uh, open father. There's one that just likes things done according to the rules set forth for the family. But just a chapter ahead, later in Matthew, Jesus talks about what kind of father we have. So look at Matthew 7 real quick with me. Verse 7. If we're going to say our father, we need to know what our father is like. Look at this eager father that Jesus paints for us. Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Again, this is about prayer, isn't it? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread, and that is son... Okay, father-son relationship. Who, what man is there? Just look around. Who, when his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Kind of trickery. Kind of leaving him hanging. Uh, expectations are totally not only not met, but, but it's kind of a cruel joke. Or who, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, there's that term again, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also them, for this is the law and the prophets. So basically, he's just taking you to what kind of father do you have that you go to in relationship, in prayer? Well, it's a father who loves, loves, loves to pour a blessing upon his children. How do you become a child? You come through Jesus, the finished blood, the finished work on the cross, the blood of his, the Savior that was poured out. We come cleansed, we come whole, we come received Fully and completely in the beloved, that is Jesus. And once that's established, you become a child. First John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So it's, it's just by him in the first two words, we already have the gospel, don't we? We have Father loves, Father forgives, Father allows us to become his children who were not his children. This is the gospel. This is why we come in prayer. This is what separates it from religion and puts it in a place of relationship. So when you come and you pray, or when you pray, as even Jesus would say, in secret or in corporate prayer, you're coming with that in mind that I am a child who is loved, and I'm coming in at the impulse of that love, and I'm coming in response in, in, in many ways to, to be close in my relationship that's already existing. Does that make sense? It's a lot different than... If I pray today, my 15 minutes, I get a good check mark in my good child uh, list, okay? Or if I didn't, then I don't, I don't even want to have anything to do with this child. No. It's like we are his children, and thus we come and have fellowship with him. Okay, moving on. Who's in heaven? Okay, this next phrase, who is in heaven? Why is that significant? Well, there's something about the understanding that when you pray, this is a miracle, you guys. The miracle is is when you pray, and you pray together, we're not just praying to each other, okay? Where do, your prayer, where do your prayers ascend? Where is God located, if you will? But in heaven. When Jesus teaches how to pray. Okay, first, relationship. Let's get that established. Second, who are you praying to? God, where is he? Where's the Father? He's in heaven. Your prayers go heavenward. And post-cross post would be Jesus is there at the right hand interceding for all of us. And so you have these prayers ascend to Jesus, to the Father. They're all there in heaven. And it says something that it's not what you bring that makes them ascend there. It's that Jesus 
you know, in a sense, draws them to himself. But that you have the ear of the Father when you pray. Isn't that amazing? You have the ear. It's not because of how great you are. It's not the prayer that makes that happen. It's the Father who loves his children that bends down and says, Yes, honey. Yes, son. What do you want? What's on your heart? What are you trying to communicate? What are your burdens? I want them. They ascend into heaven. He's there in heaven, and somehow, miraculously, here's our prayer. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed. How many people have used hallowed in their sentences lately? What does that mean? Very confusing as a child to know. Hallowed be your name. I don't understand that. Basically what that means is just you're kept apart. You're separate from me. You're holy. I'm approaching you, and thus your name will be honored. That's what the word means, to set apart and to honor. And so why is that significant? Well, think about the throne and what's going on there. The angels surround him, worshiping him 24-7. The saints around him, as we see in Revelation. Uh, Jesus is there at the throne interceding for us. And in his name, Jesus' name is honored and set apart consistently, right? Look at the lamb who has been slain. Through all of eternity, we'll be looking at him. His name is totally separate. His, his, his being is totally otherworldly, if you will. And somehow, again, the gospel makes it into the miraculous that we sinners, saved by grace, totally cleansed of our sin, actually can esteem a holy God like that. And really what that, didn't, that tells me is that prayer starts... With recognizing the relationship, if you don't have a relationship as a child of the Father, you can't come and pray in any realm because what it starts with is you have to, or you're called to, worship him. Okay? Hallowed be your name. That's prayer. That's worship. You can't be a, a, a hypocrite and say, yeah, I'll come, I'll pray. Give me this, this, and this without worship involved. It's like there, there's no fa- uh, father-child relationship at work there. When you do have a child-father relationship, and it's a good father, and you know he's eager, what do you want to do? You want to tell him. You want to praise him. You want to proclaim how great he is. You want to keep his name hallowed, if you will. That's where prayer starts, is worship. And we tend, as people, right? This is what I have, God. This is my list. I have five minutes. I got to get through these real quick. You got to pay attention here, God, because if I don't get through these, you know, you're not going to know about them and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, wait a second. You would... You, would, you have the tendency, right, when you start with worship, to like Jesus said, hey, this is how you're to pray. I think this is a great reason for it. So when you start with worship, your list, it's almost like you just crumble it up and throw it out. And you're like, God, I already know who you are. You're powerful. You're big. You're mighty. You're loving. You're faithful. All these things. And pretty soon your list, it's like, ah, okay, yeah, I have a lot of things that are on my heart. We'll talk about them in a second. But God is so big, it's like I don't even need to go beyond worship. Right? That's why worship is, has to be first. Or it's, it's told by us by Jesus. Last phrase I have. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven. This is uh, basically just a plea, a cry to the Father who is powerful to do so, to expand your rulership, Lord. Expand your lordship uh, here in terms of your will, but mainly in the hearts of men and women. Expand your kingdom, Lord. Let it be done on earth where, where uh, there's division, where there's hatred, where there's unrighteousness. And make it be as it is in heaven, where you just, there's no denying that you're the one who deserves the glory. You're the one who gets all praise. Let it be so here. Let what happens there be, be so here. And we know that one day it will be, right? That's the glory of this, because you know it's going to be fulfilled. Your prayers are already answered, in a sense, <laughs> ultimately, as we see in Revelation. Um, but in terms of this, I used to look at it, and I, I, just as a word of encouragement, um, as something that you just kind of give to God, and it's his, his deal, Great, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, go do it. 
But as I was reading uh, different folks, it really gave me a different way to look at this. And that is you can't pray this and not really set yourself up as um, Isaiah or someone like him that would say, here my Lord, send me. Because he does his will, right? He expands his kingdom through his people. Why? Don't know. He could do a lot better than you and me put together, right? But he does. And so as you say, your kingdom coming will be done, really what you're saying is, I want my heart to be right, as it should be, with you. And then I want to be available for you to expand your kingdom through, to bless and to pour out mercy and forgiveness to those around me. So as you pray this, it's not just go do it, God, and use the rest of the people and wake me up when you're done, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, no, Lord, use me. Set my heart right and send me forth into the world that's hurting. Okay, you guys ready for verse 11? Um, it just says this, this is all that I've been given and it's more than enough. So verse 11 is give us this day our daily bread. And what I wanted to um, express just by means of introduction here first is that I've noticed in my prayer life and in other people's prayer lives and the ways that we approach God, oftentimes there are two extremes that we can go to that both are wrong. Oftentimes in the Christian life, you want this balance that our flesh is prone to go away from either this side or that side. And when it comes to prayer, there's one extreme over here that as you approach God, they're those kind of people that all they can think about and all that they talk about and all that they come to God on their knees for is centered around themselves. It's all about, I need this and I want that and help me here, kind of like James was mentioning, this list. We come right into the presence of holy God with our little list. And we go right to that. And this is where I've fallen. I've, I've kind of monitored my prayer life through the weeks and noticed this is where I sit a lot of times, is in this camp over here on this extreme that doesn't really care about God's name and God's kingdom and God's will. I, I care about my name and my kingdom and my will, and I want to get that across to him first. So that's an extreme over here. Those sorts of people, and if, if, if you're some of those in this room, you need to begin like with, where, with what James was saying, where, where Jesus begins, which is recognizing your Father in heaven, recognizing He knows what you need long before you ever ask Him, recognizing that you want first to worship Him, that His name be hallowed, His kingdom, His will. And then you get to our text today. But there are those other people that approach God in this extreme. Okay, you got those people that only think about themselves, talk about themselves. To some degree, that's kind of where I sit, and that's my struggle. Then you've got, there's, there's a group of people over here that they know all about how holy God is. They know all about how great and in heaven and set apart and how worthy of worship He is. They see that. They understand that. But because they see Him as so great as the one who dwells in unapproachable light, they think He couldn't possibly care about my little needs. I'm just here... You know, it says in Isaiah 40 that God looks down and he's just like, you guys are like grasshoppers to me. <laughs> it's like these little insignificant nothing. Like when's the last time you looked at a grasshopper and saw significance? Nothing? You just step on it and you move on. God says, listen. <laughs> Sorry. When they're in your house, you want them out of there. Uh, God says, listen, you guys are like that to me. Okay? As far as being set apart, that's what it's like. But, but. I want for you to know that though we may be worlds apart in terms of how great we are, I still 
love you. I still care about you. I still want to give you your daily bread. And so you got both extremes. And these people over here thinking about themselves. These people over here thinking God couldn't possibly want to concern himself with me. These people over here need to hear verse 11. That Jesus is commanding. He's encouraging. He's saying, when you pray, ask the Father for your bread. Ask him for the needs of your body. And now, if I were to give a title to this little section that I have here, what it would be is this. When Jesus says bread, he means bread. And I know that that sounds ridiculous at first, but what you have to understand is throughout the ages, there have been guys over on this camp, this extreme over here that have thought, oh, you know, maybe God's too holy, God's too great. And this is how they've interpreted that word bread, okay? They've looked at the flow of the Lord's Prayer. They said, we get done praying about a God in heaven and holy is his name and kingdom and will. And that's so inspiring. That's so, you know, amazing kind of prayers. And then all of a sudden we drop from this heavenly realm down to say, give me bread for my body. I'm hungry. Give me food. My, My stomach is rumbling. And they go, that couldn't be what Jesus is meaning here. That's not spiritual enough. So they interpret it like this. The bread must mean uh, communion. You know that bread when Jesus said, hey, I I break this bread represents my body. So they go, that bread must actually mean Jesus' crucified body, right? Or they go, that bread must mean the word of God. Man doesn't live by by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So they say, he couldn't possibly be talking about natural food that we just need for our physical bodies. That's not spiritual enough. That's not holy enough. He must mean these other things. But I believe, and I hope that you guys understand, Jesus means bread when he says bread. And so... There are three implications that I want to draw from that for the ways we approach God in prayer and uh, lessons kind of for our lives. The first would be this. We get our bread from God. I know that sounds really simple, but it's profound when you think about it. Jesus is saying, come to the Father and ask Him for your bread. That means your bread comes from Him. That means the things that you need, you get from Him. Which means you might not be as self-sufficient as you once thought you were. That make sense? Especially for men, I make note of just how, as as dudes, we love to talk about the reality. We're going to grow up. We're going to have a family. We're going to be the breadwinner, right? We're going to be the one that bring home the bacon. We're going to be the ones that go to work, work hard with our money, buy food, provide for our family. I did it. And God says, no, you didn't. You get your bread from me. That makes sense? That's why, as I was thinking about this, just realizing that I mean, most Christians, we think we're good Christians, we join hands and we go, Father, bless this food. Thank you for it. That's not just mere formality in those moments. What that is, is recognizing this prayer that says, this food, though my wife cooked it and I paid for it, ultimately comes from your hand, and we give you thanks for it. So our bread comes from God. Now, second implication is this. We need this bread daily, okay? We need this bread daily. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous it is that 
I eat, I, I ate like, you know, a couple hours ago, maybe before some of you were even up, and in about another hour, I'm going to need more. <laughs> I'm hungry again. And I think God intended for that. Because what that means is, again, I need him. Not just once a month when I come and say, hey, give me a little bread. I need him today. I need him tomorrow. I need him the next day. Yesterday's bread is not sufficient for tomorrow. So we are dependent upon God for this gift to meet our bodily needs. These base, low, little insignificant things that keep us alive. We need Almighty God to come and give that to us. Third implication would be this. He loves to do it. Jesus is encouraging these people, his disciples, to come to God because God loves to give. He's not saying come and maybe God will will bless you. He's saying, listen, I want you to come to the Father and ask him for your daily bread because yes, you need it. Yes, you need it daily. And yes, he loves to give it. He loves to provide. And so what I want to draw out of this here in closing is you guys have needs? You guys have things that you feel like before coming in this morning were just insignificant to God who's out there somewhere doing his will and working in his kingdom and doing all this stuff but couldn't possibly care about my final exam or my bank account or my hard times at work or my aching knee. That's not big enough for God to worry about. He's got planets he's keeping in line. Right? He is. Believe me. But the reality is, what we can draw is that while he's out there, he's also right here. And he's watching over you and I like a father watches over his child. And when his child cries out, I have need, I'm hungry, help me, whatever it may be for you, his ears are in tune with that. And he loves to come and bless and give. So I just hope that later on when we approach God in prayer, you approach him knowing, man, he cares about you, even down to this seemingly insignificant details as to, I'm hungry and I need a little bread, Father. He loves that. So give him the opportunity to bless you and glorify himself. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm at uh, verse 12 now. Look at that one with me. And forgive us our debt as we have also forgiven our debtors. Okay. So, I think, it, just keep in mind as, as, as you guys are teaching here, the order uh, of, or as Jesus is teaching, the order of his prayer. I think it's just interesting here as we see, you know, it starts at the, the heavenly realm, hallowed be thy name. Uh, as James is sharing and then Nick just giving us, then he brings it down, provide for us. And then now we're dealing with, we have, we have a debt that we owe God. We have a sin problem, something that we need to be forgiven of. Uh, when I was a, a wee little boy, um, I remember asking my mom, saying, uh, so mom, do I, do I need to be forgiven for every one of my sins? And, and you know, her being a, a good mother, she said, absolutely, Ben, you, you need to ask for forgiveness for every sin. So I was thinking, okay. Uh, so in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go suck my brother right now. And then right <laughs> after, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And I'm going to get right with God. You know? So I'm like, you know, being a good little Pharisee, uh, going over there, bam, knock him, you know, he's crying, and then right away, God, forgive me. 
and then I, I'm going to heaven. I'm good. Me, me and God are good now. And, and I was treating it as a self-justification, self uh, I was beginning my prayer with forgiveness. You know, you see the danger there where, where there was no relationship with God. There was no awe of who God is in heaven. There was no desire for God to provide for the needs of my life. All I, all I was interested in is going to heaven. It was just my little ticket, you know, my little combination lock to getting out of my sin problem. So what I think it's important for us to look at here is ask this question is what is the debt that we owe God? Um, Turn with me to First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 16. I want to pick it up in verse 23. I think that this is a prayer or a song that David sang. I'm not going to sing, but I'm going to read it. And he says, he kind of gets into what, I think in this piece he explains to us, what do we owe God? What is due to God? This is really good. Um, starting verse 23, verse chapter 16. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Okay, so we see David right here is telling us, you're bringing all of Israel together. He starts singing and he sings this song. The man, what is due to God's name is worship and praise and glory. That, 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 that shouldn't be given anywhere else. Um, another verse in, in the Psalms, uh, this is Psalm 115.1. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You know, we all know the song, not to us, you know. That's actually a Bible verse, right? Praise the Lord. You know, we didn't make that up. So it's just really cool. And this, this song that we sing, can we break? The song that we sing. No, give us a break. Okay, sorry. The song, I'm almost done. Y'all good? They're good. They're good. Okay. The song that we sing is about giving the glory to God. In, in Isaiah 40. 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that's my name. For my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I mean, it just, we see this theme throughout the entire Bible. You can't avoid it, that, that God is about being worshipped, about glory coming to his name. So, I would submit to us in this prayer that Jesus is, is, is telling us how to pray, forgive us of our debt. I believe that our debt to God is not worshipping him as God. I think oftentimes we define sin as rule-breaking, right? We kind of default to that, you know? Uh, don't eat the cookies in the cookie jar. Might be a rule in your house, and you're like, you break that rule, you're bad. Well, I think obedience is, is a major issue. We see through the Bible, but I think if there's not a motivation of worship that, that spurs on our obedience, we're missing a point. Because this is the thing. We can be, you can keep all the rules. You can be completely moral, and you can be worshiping yourself. You can be worshiping your moralism, right? We see the uh, was it Matthew 19? You know, the, this guy comes to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to enter, enter eternal life? He goes, keep all the commandments. This guy, I've done all that. And then Jesus, Jesus goes on and shares how hard it is. He goes away sad because his dependence was on himself. He was, he was trusting in his own justification to justify himself before God. And at the end of this whole thing, he said, what? How are we supposed to get saved, Jesus? This seems crazy. And I love it because he goes, what's impossible with man 
is possible with God. And so, so in this, uh, we owe God worship, okay? Um, I, I think a really good way to define sin, go with me to Romans 1. I just want to share a few verses out of this. Romans 1. A lot of times we'll, we'll look at this, we'll hear this thing called the Romans Road, and uh, that's a great way to share the gospel. And a lot of that begins in Romans 3.23, saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're a non-Christian, you hear that, you're like, well, I think I would ask a question, well, what's sin? Uh, ben, you know, you're telling me I'm a sinner? How do I define that? And I think Romans 1 does a great job of that. Let me get over a few more books here. I think we're going to start in verse, oh, there it is, one sec. Start at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul, in this whole thing, he, he explains to us sin, the issue of sin, is false worship. It's the exchange of the creator for worship of the creation. And, and this doesn't play out, I mean, I know you guys don't have, uh, you know, idols set up in your house, but, but it, it could be your TV. It could exchange your desire for TV, desire for your family, over your desire uh, to serve God. Um, there's just so many ways that we can exchange the glory of God for creation. So it's, it's not a matter of God wanting to be a killjoy and to kill our lifestyle, but it's a matter of, of realizing what's priority. What, where, does glory, where is glory deserved? Um, so I think the question is, like, that's great, Ben. You've just defined sin really well for me. What do we do with that? Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Paul has this great piece, love this, starting in verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that is such great news that Jesus, in a sense right here, Paul is saying how Jesus deals with our debt, deals with our worship problem, and and goes to the cross and enables us to forgive. We get to be forgiven, okay? We we are not atoning for our sins when I come to God and say, God, forgive me of sucking my brother in the face. Uh, No, God has already declared victory over my sin at the cross. That the cross has absorbed my sin. Uh, he's paid the penalty. He's taken the responsibility to worship God for me. I just love that. It sets me free. That, that's why we gather here. That's why we get to pray. And I think as we look at this verse in forgiveness, what we need, is, what we need to see is the gospel. How does Jesus deal with this issue of us needing to be forgiven? He goes to the cross for us and enables us to be able to be forgiven. And then the next piece in here is just uh, about forgiving others. I think some of us have a hard time forgiving people. I I would say you need to relook the gospel. How how does the gospel empower you to be one that forgives? Um, Central to Jewish thought 
within Jesus' ministry and with even Paul the Apostles was the story. A story that had, had really driven everything they did. Okay? You've got to understand, everything in the New Testament, everything we have in terms of doctrine, every type of doctrine that we get within the church, literally is derived from the story. The story of God's account of history. The overriding story that all Jews basically always go back to and look at as a regular sort of touch point for them to regularly keep connected with is the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is this unbelievable story whereby God, who has dominion, power, authority over all things, even, even powerful pharaohs, okay? That's the story of Exodus, that God, who's, who's, who's in heaven, who feels distant, feels far off, he comes near. And the way he comes near is he exercises his authority by destroying the stronghold of bondage and oppression of Pharaoh, who nobody can at all in any way come against, not even Moses. I mean, Moses comes against him, but even, even Pharaoh has his own counterattacks on Moses. Uh, it takes a miracle of God's dominion coming in, breaking the oppression of Pharaoh. And then God, you got the story of God leading the people of Israel into the wilderness. People of Israel in the wilderness call out to God and say, God, we're hungry. We're dying out here. God gives them food. God, we're thirsty. We're dying out here. God gives them water. And as they journey through this, this, this wilderness experience of, of trial, of temptation, every step of the way, God is with them. And, and I look at the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that Jesus gives to us, in a lot of ways, I see just unbelievable hints of the Exodus story or narrative in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prays, your Father is in heaven, but He's powerful, and He's ruling over all things. Pray that your Father who's in heaven moves here. And there's this promise that the Jews had from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, that as surely as the waters cover all the earth, so will the glory of the Lord cover the earth. So they had this hope. And then the second thing is we even see within the prayer, Jesus says, hey, you know, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is here in heaven. Give us this day. Again, God is the story, the hint, the echo of the story of the Exodus. God providing for, his, for their daily bread. Uh, also, you get the echo of this uh, reality that God brought them out and he forgave them. Even Jesus uses the phrase when he says, when you pray, pray our Father. As soon as the people of Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, God pulls them aside and says, Today, Israel, you are my son. This is Exodus language. This is Jesus adopting language from the stories that all Jews were familiar with. And he's saying, this is how God is to you. He's like your father. This is how God is to you. He wants to take care of you. This is how God is to you. He offers this unbelievable gift called forgiveness. And this is how God is to you. He'll protect you in your trials. That's why Jesus, my little last section here, is he says, when you pray, and when you pray, say, lead us, not into, lead us not into temptation. The word temptation can also mean a testing. As we go through testing and trial and hardship, pray and ask God to, to be with you, to help you, to strengthen you. It's not just sort of to leave you there in the negative, Okay, now we're protected in the middle of the testing. 
but it's, it, it implies this positive. Um, help us to not just be protected in the time of testing, but help us to walk right. Help us to walk righteously. Help us to walk like our God. So the whole point, in essence, of this passage of even forgiveness is Jesus is basically reminding us that forgiveness is like every other gift that God gives to us. Okay? Every gift that God gives to us comes with a responsibility. A responsibility as to how we use it. Did you know that you are forgiven before God not as an end in and of itself? I have to be honest and say that post-Reformation theology in a lot of ways has been as the climax of all theology is simply this just to be forgiven. That's true, but it's not complete. The goal of being forgiven is God. It's fellowship with the Father. That's why we're forgiven. We've had an offense before God, and we need to be forgiven, not as an end in and of itself, but so that we can have fellowship with God. But this gift of forgiveness is meant to not just be an end in and of ourselves, but to be a gift that we give on to other people. So in other words, it goes something like this. If you've been forgiven, and you know the blessings of forgiveness, then we are called to be forgiving. Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing, right? That, that was, this, this is the way that God had already, always intended for it. And so in this prayer, you see sort of the summary of all this. I want to wrap this up and we'll finish and we're going to pray right now. There's four things I want to wrap up. One, we see that in the Lord's Prayer, it's really about... Um, it's, it's meant to be meaningful. And we'll see these up here. It's meant to be meaningful as opposed to just simply being religious duty or routine. In other words, it's meant to have uh, actual encounter with God. It's meant to actually have meaning as opposed to just saying empty words or meditating or emptying your mind of all sorts of other thoughts and just try to meditate on nothingness. Prayer is meant to actually have meaning. The second thing is it's also meant to be intimate. Hence the idea of God or Jesus saying, God is your father. That's the, only, that's the main reason, is that God wants to be intimate with us, to have fellowship with us. This is really significant because, <laughs> you know, when you, when you look at this, that's what Jesus is really trying to drive at. He's trying to bring all of this to this climax, that God wants to have fellowship and relationship with his creation. What keeps us from that, as Ben said, is our sin. Once that's dealt with, now we have access to the father. Through Jesus. The third thing is this. There's momentum implied here. All right. This is sort of juxtaposed against this uh, broader concept within religious pagan deities in Jesus' day that had to do with these little idols. Jesus is not this little uh, motionless uh, idol sitting on the mantle of a fireplace. But Jesus points out God is not on a fireplace. He's in heaven. And he's ruling, actively ruling over all things. But this God who is actively ruling over all things really wants to bring his reign throughout this whole earth. And the crazy thing is for some reason, this is still a mystery to me, how or why, but for whatever reason, the way that God advances his kingdom, as James so well said, is in collusion with the prayers of his children. Okay? I don't know how else to put it other than to say the way that God wants to bring his glory and change and transformation into this world is by you and I pausing and saying, Father, do this. Lord, let your kingdom come here. And the last thing is all this really has to do with forgiveness. It's all fueled by the sense of forgiveness. 